You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Nick Savrov, who is using Rails to build an all-in-one platform that helps content creators build a business. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Well, and uh, thank you for having me on this show. Um, my full name actually is Nikita. I'm uh, originally from Russia, so I'm just uh, using Nick here as a nickname to make life easier for everyone around me. <laughs> I definitely appreciate it. Although I am half Russian, but I don't speak it. Well, nice, nice. Yeah, my full name is Nicholas, uh, and it's Greek and Russian, technically. So, Nick, do you want to introduce yourself and let people know a little bit more about your site? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as I said, uh, my name is Nikita Savrov, or you can call me Nick. Um, I'm a Ruby on Rails uh, programmer with um, 10-ish years of experience. I'm originally from Russia and currently based in Maryland in D.C. metro area. And uh, for the past seven years, I'm working on Uscreen, a video monetization platform that uh, allows content creators to build their own membership sites uh, to sell their videos. When you started this project seven years ago, was it just you developing it yourself or did you kind of start with a partner? So I actually was hired initially to work on this project. And it was a small Shopify app. When I joined, uh, we started to build as its own SaaS product outside of Shopify. So that's how it started. Okay. And when it started there, when you got hired, did you come into already a pretty large code base or was it sort of near the start? Um, it was like a pretty small code base and um, the whole application was tied to uh, the Shopify ecosystem. So it was pretty easy to start from there. Hmm. I'm actually kind of interested. So I did develop a Shopify app once long ago. I don't know how many years ago. It must have been like seven or eight. Uh, nowadays, is it actually like a, a very nice system to work with? Because I remember it being pretty good back then. I would imagine it just improved, I guess, or no? So um, as we pivot out of Shopify to our own SaaS solution, I'm not uh, in context of what is going on right now there. But from what I saw in the latest uh, Shopify Unite conference, they're, they're doing extremely good. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting business model. But it's pretty cool to see that you are transitioning away to become, becoming basically independent, right? Totally separate from Shopify. Yeah, correct. Correct. Nice. So over the seven years of this thing running, are you able to share any metrics or interesting traffic data, like how many people use your platform or some events per month or something like that? Yeah, sure. Um, we currently support like six and a half million users on our platform. And our content creators uh, made uh, a little bit more than $100 million in uh, this year alone. So um, I think we have some similarities with Shopify in terms of uh, load, not quantity, but in terms of behavior of load. So, you know, w with Shopify, you right now have um, merch drops which uh, generate a huge amount of load to, to the Shopify ecosystem, right? When Kanye, for example, come up with their with his new Easy um, shoes, um, Shopify right away get a lot of traffic, right? In our case, whenever our big content creators do a live stream, we have a similar effect. Very interesting, yeah, because... I mean, I don't follow live streaming a ton, but I know there are some out there that get, what, like 150,000 concurrent listeners. Is it even higher than that? 
our record was um, around 200,000 users coming in. In our case, it's all like paid gate content. So they all need to log in, purchase, and get to watch the video. Wow, that's awesome. So yeah, I think before we start tearing down the tech stack and talking about interesting things that are built, do you want to just paint a picture of maybe some of the types of screens that your application has? Like what would an end user see as a content creator? And you know, also maybe on the back end too, if you have like an admin section. Yeah, so um, we have basically two parts of the system, right? Uh, we have admin area for a content creator where they typically will log in or sign up and manage their content, manage their subscribers, and uh, build up their uh, look and feel for their storefront. And the second part is a storefront. It's the place where end user coming in. So this is where all the loads usually come. There you have a catalog with the video, similar to like a Netflix, Masterclass, Skillshare type look and feel. And uh, people would choose the content they want to watch and sign in, sign up, uh, purchase the access. It could be subscription, pay-per-view events, and, and watch it. That, that's how it's working, basically. Nice. So it's basically like the idea that if you are a popular live streamer, instead of folks tuning in on something like Twitch or YouTube, they would come through your platform? Yeah, it's one of the use cases. Uh, live stream we added early this year. Um, initially, was mostly uh, were around the VOD side of the business. Typical example for, we have uh, big YouTubers like Yoga with Adrian. She has, uh, I think, more than 10 million subscribers, or I don't actually remember, six or 10. Ah, okay, bummer. <laughs> Yeah, so she has a lot of subscribers. And um, what she's building with us is the membership platform where she knows that she has no ads, where she can put additional types of content that will not work really good on YouTube because, for example, uh, her primary thing is yoga, right? And it would be like 15 to 30 minutes video. And on YouTube, unless you have YouTube premium, you will see an ad and it's not super convenient to see an ad in the middle of yoga workout when you like in some weird position and then boom, <laughs> you have like 15 seconds, 15 seconds of the, uh, the app. And another part is um, in YouTube, you will automatically go to a next video. Imagine you're typically doing a yoga workout and then you in Shavasana. So you like end up chilling on your mat on the floor and then boom, next video started. And it's like completely ruining your experience. So um, a lot of people like that ended up with their own uh, solutions and not only like fitness and yoga, you can see right now, like uh, Jake Paul, I think they built their own VOD platform and uh, a lot of other content creators moving out. There is like a lot of sides of why they doing that, right? But um, I think moving forward, a lot of our a lot of our users is um, influencers or content creators that just want to monetize. So it's not only a live streamers; it's also any types of video content production teams or content creators. Right. So almost like in comparison to, I don't know, like a course platform, like Teachable or something, like if someone wanted to introduce paid videos or something like that? Yes. Yeah. So um, I think you had an engineer from Podia recently on your podcast. I listened to that one. It was, was really good. Uh, but 
um, you stated it correctly. So in case of like Pogre, Teachable, Thinkific, Kajabi, they're, they're all great solution, great platforms, but there you have like a course from A to Z, right? Where like st starting from the beginning and by the end you typically get a certificate or some kind of like understanding that now you know how to, I don't know, write a Ruby on Rails app or whatever. In our case, it's more um, content that you can consume again and again and uh, the content that built in a like byte learning system, you know, where a good example for Rails engineers, it's, uh, you know, the old uh, good uh, Railscast. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what you will build with our platform technically. Oh, very cool. Now, speaking of Rails, you know, earlier you said that uh, your record was like 200,000 concurrent watchers. And, you know, even Shopify itself, also a Rails app, very big. So it's funny, you know, there's always that running joke like, oh, Rails can't scale at all. But it sounds like you are running quite well if uh, you're able to handle loads like that. Yeah, so we struggled a little bit um, during all those uh, growth uh, phases because they usually come in uh, unexpectedly. And I think the COVID did a big push for us in terms of understanding of how we will uh, scale up our application. Rails doing really well. Like, we're not like hating all other languages or anything, but uh, the whole team love Ruby, so... We were trying to think how we can solve the problems with Ruby and Rails and uh, keeping our monolith uh, structure rather than splitting everything to microservices and uh, doing something that not described in Rails doctrine that we really like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. And, you know, going back to the app on day one, or, you know, at least when you got hired there, was it a Rails app from day one or did you guys transition to that? No, it was a Rails app. So for me, it was uh, easy to start working there. Nice. And with the team loving Ruby and everyone working with that, is that basically their reason for choosing Rails in the beginning? When I started, um, the team that worked on the project uh, was just hired uh, as a consultancy. So it was like a consulting agency from Poland uh, that used Ruby on Rails as a primary core technology. And I think back then Ruby on Rails was like extremely popular as a, as a tool to build a fast prototype. I think it should be still there, but sometimes people selling other technologies there and taking a lot more time with them. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of Rails, do you want to go over maybe some features of Rails that you're using here to build your app? Yeah, so um, initially when we started, uh, we were typical Rails app was like Rails full stack way. Uh, we really liked Turbolinks and it helped us a lot to build native apps. So our native apps were Turbolinks and uh, some pieces of native, native functionality for a video player. And that's what allowed us to build those apps, the first version of apps, really fast and uh, be really efficient in terms of our team size. And um, one another technology that was extremely helpful for us um it's liquid that's uh, all credits to shopify there for building that but it it worked with rails extremely well from the day one and uh, it allow us to build a robust system for storefronts on our platform where our publishers can literally modify their themes and look and feel of the storefront and actually write code there yeah and i think 
for me personally, I really like um, a lot of Ruby on Rails projects. And from day one, when I started to work with Rails, I was like, I don't know, like I can't use any other technology after that. <laughs> Everywhere <laughs> I'm going, I feel like I don't, I don't have enough power to build things fast. And uh, just moving fast is one of the core uh, things that I like in, in Ruby on Rails and just in general in Ruby. So you as a single developer can, can build a pretty complex system pretty fast. Yeah, that's definitely something great about Rails. Like the bar, they've raised it so high. And I forget which keynote it was. I don't know if you watched that one from like, I don't know, 2015 or something where DHH was talking about that whole thing. Like basically... Rails is this backpack that you can put on as a single developer and actually ship like an entire app from beginning to end. Yeah, yeah, I'm truly believing that. In the first, I think, two years, I was working on the project alone. It was enough uh, to actually build the project, test it, and figure out where we want to go before we start to hire the team. Right. Now, before you just mentioned that you are using Turbolinks and you do like that because it allows you to spin up kind of, you know, maybe not a native app experience, but, you know, people on different mobile devices, they can view your site like the HTML form. Did you go the hybrid approach too, like creating the skeleton of a native app for iOS and Android and you kind of just use Turbolinks to load everything except maybe the navbar or something? Kind of like what they do at Basecamp? So uh, we did a hybrid approach. Uh, back when we started, it was uh, part of React Native and the Turbolinks for most of the items. We slowly transitioned to Dart and uh, I think it just makes sense for us and the apps we have uh, because we have uh, video delivery and required to build more like native experience and uh, a lot of things should work offline. That's how it's end up. But initially when we started, I think Turbolinks allow us to prototype fast, build the first version of a product just get a realization that that's something that people want. Okay. So just to paint like a clearer picture, you did mention this is a monolithic app, but is it still now mostly server rendered like ERB templates with Turbolinks and just a little bit of JavaScript here and there for like, you know, the video player and whatnot? Or is it more just like an API backend with uh, more Dart on the front end? So here's the interesting thing that uh, we're trying to keep a structure of a classic Rails application, but we're using Vue.js on front end. What we're using for the last six to nine months is Inertia.js. It ended up like really handy for us because um, it allow you to to operate with typical Rails controllers as you would uh, in typical Rails application and just uh, render the data to a specific page, right, right, a specific endpoint, and operate there with the Vue.js. So that's how we're currently doing that. And it's also giving you a really nice um, feel of a single page application because Nurshia.js built in a way where all next requests will, will be handled with the front-end router and request will receive a JSON in the answer rather than render the, the, the piece of uh, HTML with the data. So hmm, Interesting. So it's almost like, because I've never used Inertia before, is it something like an alternative to maybe using like current day hotwire turbo frames and stuff like that like you're still responding with html the whole build still happening on the front end there like you can uh, run the node.js server and reinvent the rails once again but we don't doing that and um, for us um, we started to doing that before i think before hotwire 
uh, were released in the first version. And uh, we inside the team just really like Vue.js. We already had like four years ago, I think, we already had some parts of application with more complex logic uh, written in Vue.js. Uh, because we have uh, video uploading there or editing of a storefront, which is complicated interface where you actually have a site builder. This is where Vue.js already uh, start to ops up in our system. And it was just like logical decision for us to, to continue to write on, on the Vue.js rather than have like two different sort of views here and there. Right. Yeah, the idea of creating like a front-end site builder seems like a very good use case for like a very JavaScript-heavy uh, front-end, right? Because it's like you're dragging and dropping and editing things. And yeah, I would imagine that was a lot of work getting that set up. We're actually still using a lot of Rails power there. Uh, for example, something that appeared in, in iframe actually rendered by Rails. So it's like uh, final HTML is back and rendered. And uh, we're using a few JavaScript libraries. I think uh, library created by PayPal. Uh, you know, whenever you're paying somewhere through the brain tree and the PayPal model window appear. Um, so that's library open source by PayPal, and it's allowing you to cross communicate between uh, the iframe inside and outside world from from the page. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of you kind of have. Um, typical uh, component communication where you can send props to the iframe and listen events from iframe on the top. So that's what we're using. But we're still trying to keep as as much like simple rail stuff as possible. So far, it's working. Nice. Now, for the site builder part, is there also like an advanced mode where you can kind of get almost like a, a full-blown text editor that you can just edit the HTML and CSS and whatnot? Kind of like Shopify? Yeah. Which editor do you use for that one? I actually don't don't remember what exactly we're using right now. Um, so we'll not be able to tell right away. But it was one of the open source uh, editors. Okay. Um, what we're working on right now is to build an option for developers to actually download code from their theme, edit them offline, and just upload it back uh, to our system with Git. So that would be the next step, but we're still in progress there. Right, yeah, that is definitely gonna, I would imagine be very handy. I remember that back in the day with Shopify where they did have a command line tool where you can kind of just, yeah, locally edit and push it up. It was super handy. So going back here to your app, do you want to maybe go over a couple of interesting libraries that you have in your gem file? You know, you can rattle off some of the usual suspects like device or whatever if you're using it, but like anything interesting in there? Yeah, so, um... I think the most interesting part's coming there from from Liquid because uh, we're really trying to allow people to build the fully custom storefronts. This is where uh, a lot of uh, things usually is not super uh, typical for for daily based operation uh, with Rails app. Then um, we're using Fastly. A lot in our stack, so we have uh, Fastly Gem, and we're using their uh, caching for our storefronts. That's actually something that allowing us to scale our Rails application really well, especially storefront part, because uh, with Fastly, what you can do is you can varnish cache built in their CDN, come up with a bunch of rules there, and it's like extremely simple, extremely easy, and extremely cheap compared to editing. 
uh, adding uh, like server power to your Rails application. So that's something interesting. Mm. Yeah, we'd love to talk about that one. So yeah, because usually when you think CDN, you think like, okay, I'm going to be putting maybe my JavaScript and CSS bundles and images and whatnot. But it sounds like you are actually caching the entire URL endpoint for a specific store. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what strategies you may have used to help be able to serve a single static version of that to all of your uh, visitors, right? Because there might be some components of the page that might be dynamic, right? Like if a specific user is logged in, like you might see like like their profile image in the top right, that's different for everyone. Yes, correct. So uh, what we currently uh, did, uh, whenever we know that the page is static, uh, which is completely running it through CDN, and also we running through CDN all API endpoint that we know are not changing from depending on the user status, if user sign in, if user has access to content, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that help us to outload a lot of uh, a lot of things to just CDN and and also deliver content a lot faster across globe. Yeah, because that definitely makes a really big difference, right? It's like if your servers are in somewhere in the U.S. and you have a visitor. I don't know, in like Eastern Europe or Russia, right? It's like that latency is going to be pretty high. But with a CDN, it suddenly it's like kind of a solved problem. Definitely. Plus, it's reducing amount of uh, requests coming to your server. And in our case, it's like um, dropping down up to like 35% of all the requests we, we get in daily base. Oh, wow. Now, for the video stuff, do you use a specific uh, SaaS provider like Mox or someone else? Yeah, so we have a really awesome partnership with Mox right now, and we're working with them for more than two years, I think. Awesome. Yeah, so far it's it's been like really good. Hmm. So maybe we can talk a little bit about just like the video experience, right? So I haven't looked at your site firsthand. Do you want to go over like uh, the custom video player that you've created and like maybe what type of nice features that it has? Yeah. So um, over the course of of the use screen history, we were mostly focused on on the features for content creators to actually monetize stuff. So um, as you see, we're still working with Mox and we know these people can confidently deliver good video quality, right? So we're not building it in-house. We're focusing on actual tools that could help our content creators uh, to build better uh, better businesses. I think it's similar to, to what like Teachable, Thinkific, Podia, and Kajabi does, but they usually use Vistia, I think in a lot of cases, but mm -hmm. uh, I would say they have uh, less video streamed and less video that they stored because in courses you're usually like uploading six to eight videos where in our case, average client uploading like 300 videos. So um, in terms of um, video player, uh, we started to use open source player uh, called Blur. It was extremely awesome for us for next, for a, for a first like, two years of of using that technology. Before that, we used just VideoJS. And right now, we're running our fully custom-built player. Um, just because through the time, we figure out all the issues um, that Blur had. And um, we just wanted to, to be confident in something that we're building where we can extend uh, functionality of a player in the way we want it. Right. So I have not used that player firsthand. Is that one of the built-in like client SDKs that you get with Mux? Like, is it officially supported by them? Um, no, but um, 
with Mox, you can technically obtain HLS links uh, to a stream. And from there, it's like extremely easy to, to operate with the player. Nice. Yeah, I forget which episode uh, it was. Well, Mux was on the show too, but there was another one where someone ran like a course platform really oriented towards like exercise and like personal health. And like one feature of their video player was it was they made it really easy to loop certain sections of the video, like, you know, between one minute and like a minute 15. And it would just play that continuously in a loop. Like I would imagine like with yoga stuff, like, is that like something like a use case that your customers had or no? Um, not really. Um, in a lot of cases, our customer use cases um, is just uh, good, stable video delivery, right? And um, a lot of features on top of the player, for example, we released an e-commerce functionality in the player. So imagine someone doing a workout and they have some specific equipment. They can say, hey, by the way, you can click on the top left corner and purchase this equipment. So a lot of things like that. Plus, um, we have our own uh, video analytics running. So we were needed to collect specific events and stuff. And it was not super comfortable to build it around open source video player. Right. Okay. And, and for this whole front end, by the way, is it all managed through Webpacker or something else? Right now, it's all managed through Webpacker, yeah. Okay, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this one, but are you using the latest stable version of Rails or something different? Right now, we we actually moving this week to Rails 6.0.4. So we're a little bit behind from the current major version, but we're getting there. Okay, so right now, current day, you're running some Rails, whatever the latest like 5x release would be? Yes, correct. Okay. Have you been keeping track of like all the latest changes around Rails 7, like the upcoming stuff with like ES build and a lot of front end related interesting things? Oh yeah, yeah. We we actually have a Slack channel called Full Stack Rails. <laughs> oh, nice. In our company, and yeah, we we keeping really close uh, on, on what is going on with uh, with Rails 7 Alpha, and uh, we really like the the whole movement towards uh, simpler setup. Yeah, because it sounds like, you know, you probably have a very substantial amount of JavaScript code written. And uh, it would be curious to see, like, the before and after of, like, how much faster it is to build your stuff with the ES build instead of Webpacker. Yeah, yeah. Um, we actually, like, right now playing in, in one of our uh, branches with, uh, with the gems that providing functionality. So in the next few weeks, hopefully, we'll see the, the different results. But I think for us as a team, it's it's really important to keep our app as uh, monolith as long as possible because all the convenience in terms of like building new features and uh, just just running the app uh, it is they are so nice that we, we don't want to get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely. So by the way, how many people are working on the project now in terms of developers? Um, right now we have uh, 19 Rails engineers and we have like five front-end engineers that join our team in the past year. Ah, yeah, that's actually way harder than I anticipated. Not because like, I don't know what I was thinking, but yeah, that's awesome to hear. And it's all working with the monolith. So do you want to maybe go over some experiences of how that's able to work with that many developers, which really isn't like a ton of developers, right? Like, but it is really cool to see that about 20 people can just hack on a single monolithic code base and like no one's going to really stepping on each other's toes, I guess. So what we did uh, internally, we're splitting uh, the whole team to smaller cross-functional teams and uh, each cross-functional team uh, 
has their own area of responsibility in terms of uh, this is the main model and that's how we're running right now and uh, we we actually using um, just the straightforward um, separation by uh, domain logic and in the future we want to uh, push it a bit more and actually start to to explain uh, different domains in the different subfolders in our Rails application to, to make it more obvious where is each team responsibility ending. Okay, so you're talking now about like maybe introducing directories inside of your models directory for a specific domain, like account or billing or something like that? Yes, correct. Okay. So by the way, speaking of billing, how do you have it set up now? Is it basically a SaaS app like typical, you know, your customers can pay you monthly or a- annually, but then also it's like those customers can also have their own customers, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. So, uh, in our billing, we're using Stripe, but our customer can choose from Stripe, PayPal, and uh, AuthorizeNet. Cool. So how do you have that rolled up? Are you using like a specific payment gem, or do you just have each integration implemented separately? So uh, when we started, we couldn't use the uh, payment gems because uh, none of them were, um, were built around subscription and recurring billing. And uh, recurring billing is something really important for us and for our customers. So we built everything ourselves. Uh, we have an internal uh, connector library that uh, give a standard way of creating a new payment getaway in our system. So technically it's pretty scalable for the future. That's how we're running right now. Nice. And when it comes to that library or you know sets of modules that you've created, does it also take care of doing the actual subscriptions itself or do you uh, depend on like stripe specific you know subscription functionality and maybe like authorize that net because i haven't used that one firsthand so uh we keep in the whole subscription logic in-house i know that stripe depends in, in the subscription and how they handle that a lot in the past like three four years but uh, we were a little bit ahead in, in terms of how our needs and needs of our clients so we decided to to go uh, the whole subscription logic in-house. Okay. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that's set up? Because I remember a long time ago, DHH talked about like for Basecamp, they also do subscriptions in-house. And he was like, yeah, it was just like a cron job and executing this small Ruby file. Like I would imagine it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, so believe it or not, it was a cron job uh, initially uh, till the moment where we figured that uh, 24 hours is not enough to proceed all the all the jobs uh, one by one uh, for the billing. So from there, we switch to a little bit more complicated setup with Sidekick and schedule at workers. Um, I think the, the biggest challenge was uh, to make sure we don't have like duplicated payments. Hmm. But uh, we're using enterprise version of Sidekick and use uh, a lot of uh, built-in functionality that uh, allow you to do that. And uh, right now, in, um, in some days, we could, we could have like around 100,000 renewals and they run smoothly. Wow, that's uh, a lot of payments. And it's, it's really cool to see that you're using Sidekick Enterprise. Uh, you don't need to throw them under the bus, like, but has it ever failed in some way where you ended up doing like a duplicate payment? Uh, yeah, but it was our problem rather than Sidekick uh, Enterprise problem, I would say. Okay. That's, yeah, that's always the scariest thing. It's like accepting payments and sending emails. It's like two cases where you never want to send a duplicate, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And 
uh, in terms of emails, um, I think we're right now like sending around 10 million emails every week. That's where we're currently using the SendGrid and we really using SendGrid API jams because uh, we're collecting a lot of uh, stats data and uh, duplication of emails is also a complex subject. Yeah. Do, do you have that also running through some sidekick jobs? Um, yeah, we have sidekick jobs. We also start to use uh, SendGrid bulk email API, which is really handy, uh, especially when our content creators sending notification about new content coming in and uh, new sales coming in. So yeah, SendGrid doing a really nice job there. Nice. Yeah, I know what sending email, sometimes it's really interesting. Like if you have you know, hundreds of thousands of people that you want to send an email to, you know, typically it is going to take quite a number of hours for the, for all of that to get sent out. You can't just be like, oh, you know, send them out. And then five seconds later, a hundred thousand people have it. So do you find that your creators kind of schedule things well in advance to avoid, you know, everyone being able to see the email first? So I think with like latest changes to this, to the SendGrid API, they did a really nice job always um, executing those bulk emails. So like before, when we would send emails in our sidekick one by one, yeah, sometimes it would it would take some time to to just send all of that. And uh, once we start to get uh, bigger content creators with bigger networks, we were like, we're really blessed that we picked the same grid because I I honestly don't know how is uh, like Mailgun uh, handling it because I didn't work with them for like five or six years, but SendGrid doing a really nice job there. Nice. And how's the delivery rate on them? So our delivery rate is um, is pretty good. I remember that our quality score is like 98% from 100%, which, which is great. And we're delivering more than 80-85% of uh, all of our emails. And it's also like some, some issue with delivery coming from our customers not uh, verifying their domains. Right, when, okay. So sometimes it's a little bit outside of, uh, of our area of responsibility, but uh, we, we're trying really hard to make sure all of our customers, whenever they start to use our email features, are actually all set and running. Uh, I'm actually really happy that you mentioned verifying domains because, yeah, that's super important for the mail stuff. But do you also allow folks to register a custom domain and hook it up to maybe... You know, a C name to your subdomain? Yes, correct. And, and we struggle with that quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, because that is not an easy problem to solve. I'm curious, like, you know, what are some of the challenges that you came across? And like, what did you do to get around stuff that is kind of difficult? So um, I think we should start that uh, for, from, from the point that we were actually using Heroku and we still are using Heroku and we really like it because it's, it's hassle-free. And uh, Heroku not allowing you to connect uh, like 3,000 domains to Heroku and uh, not allowing you to handle native, uh, uh, naked domains. What we end up with, we build um, our own Nginx routing outside of Heroku. And uh, we built a system of generation uh, SSL certificates uh, through Let's Encrypt. And we also have uh, several like floating IPs that uh, we give away people on top of C names because um, when we started, a lot of people just did subdomain like video.mybrand.com. But as 
as a uh, creator economy like moving forward a lot of people are actually create uh, video businesses the first business they're creating so they would be just uh, myyogavideo.com and uh, it's it's extremely hard to explain people what is the difference between naked domain and 3w domain and that it's like two different items that you need to set up so for this use cases we're using ip addresses and connect to our ip addresses then our backend doing a scening check and uh, just just a record check and once it's done we generate an ssl and we're all ready to go nice so what do you think the turnaround time is before someone hooks up their domain like filling out your form to it being ready to go is it just waiting for dns or so um mostly it's uh, dns wait if they have a good provider like GoDaddy or any like major provider or DNS involved, it's good. Like it's less than a minute, they're up and running. But if they have uh, someone like the main chief where DNS is not as fast and uh, propagation could take some time before the, the new DNS record could be like delivered everywhere, you will you will need to wait a little bit. Yeah, that's always like, it's funny with the DNS stuff because yeah, it could update within minutes or like uh, half an hour, but then also it could be like a day and a half. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So you mentioned using Let's Encrypt there to issue out these certificates. Did you run into any issues around their rate limiting? Like, you know, just doing too many at a time? We did, but uh, we figured out that uh, we're not using all of this correctly. And it was just our internal problem there. And... um, I think they increased limits for us uh, on the generation. I don't remember any problems recently in the past like few months. So right now we're all good. Okay. And if you had to guess here, like how many certificates do you think you renew on a regular basis? I think we right now have around, yeah, around 2,000 certificates um, because a lot of people still using our domain was just mybrand.uscreen.io, and they're completely fine. Again, not not everybody will be happy with that, and a lot of people coming to us because they know that they can white-label their solution because we're not preventing them from from removing uscreen branding from everything. So, yeah, around like 2,000 SSL certificates and 2,000 domains right now actively used in the uscreen ecosystem. Okay, and do you ever find yourself like, not being able to sleep well and I just knowing like there's 2,000 certificates out there that I really hope that they get renewed successfully and don't like somehow CertBot or whatever library that you're using just fails for whatever reason? Um, I think first of all we're uh, we're starting a renewal process ahead of time so we're, we're never waiting till the last day and um, in the past two years the whole process was like pretty that was worked pretty perfectly. And on top of that, we have a notification system in place uh, for our on-call team in case of something going wrong. Okay. And for Let's Encrypt itself, do you use them for your domain as well? Uh, no, for our own domain, we we actually mine certificates just because uh, it wasn't historically like that. Right. So someone from your apps team or whatever, they need to go in there once a, a year or whatever it is to, to renew that? Yeah, so we're renewing it uh, every two years. And last time we did it actually this week. Ah, 
So you are good now for a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about the rest of your tech stack. So you did mention you are using Sidekick, so probably using Redis as well. Do you want to go over like what database you use? Do you happen to use anything else like Elasticsearch or Docker? Yeah, sure. So um, we're using Postgres. It's our main application database. We're also using ClickHouse. And ah. uh, this one we're using for our video analytics. Uh, the video analytics is the only part of pipeline that's uh, right version of it is outside of our Rails application. Uh, it's a um, small Golang service right now, but the, the read side is inside the Rails. So we use uh, ClickHouse Active Record Adapter, and it's it's working pretty good. Okay, so sorry to interrupt a little bit there. Do you want to just give us a rundown of what ClickHouse is and you know what types of problems it helps you solve? Yeah, so ClickHouse is a database that um, technically al allow you to write a big amount of data and shrink it really, really well. Typical use cases is stats where you need to write a lot of data in and not edit or delete data out of there. So logging, analytics uh, with events, and in our case, video analytics. Yeah, because I would imagine probably have just a few video analytics going on. <laughs> like, I mean, at this point, how many are we talking here? Like ten, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions? Um, so we're right now having like billions records um, every week. So that's where we like uh, initially we started with Postgres and we saw how uh, amount of data coming in just outgrowing our current solution. That's where we moved to ClickHouse. We have a ClickHouse and Kafka there um, to, to make sure we are not overloading ClickHouse with the amount of events. Yeah, a billion a week could do that. <laughs> That's a lot of events coming in. That's cool though, to see that Postgres, even as you were growing, it was still, uh, I guess, able to handle that to the point where it didn't take the whole entire platform down, or did it? It did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it did. Uh, we initially uh, moved a lot of, like, right operation in the background. Uh, but even then, like afterwards, what ClickHouse allow you is to build a really nice views based on the tables um, that you're writing in. It's some kind of similarity to like Postgres materialized views. It's it's working faster in ClickHouse. Yeah, just, just reading through the big uh, bulks of, of data in ClickHouse is more optimized. Right. Yeah, it's such a it's such a weird problem. Like you don't think like how many database writes would need to happen to deal with video progress, but like even the most basic case, like you know, if you're watching Netflix or whatever, like if you stop a video or a movie at the one hour mark, like you know, these video players like Netflix, whatever, it's gonna remember you're at the hour mark. So when you come back, it resumes right where you are. But like to do that, you kind of have to save the progress every X seconds, like however threshold you want, maybe every five seconds or something. And before you know it, 200,000 people, you're basically performing 200,000 writes like every five seconds. Is that kind of like how you're getting this massive amount of events? Yeah, correct. So imagine we have like 6.5 million users who are actually registered. And uh, we have a lot of uh, visitors who just watching videos and we're still collecting analytics data still, even though they're not authorized. It's going pretty fast. Right. So besides like, you know, progress, like how far they are into the video, what other types of events do you log? So uh, we, we're logging a lot of events uh, in terms of um, pause play, um, changing the full screen and getting out of full screen and all the interaction within the player inside. So 
all the functionality that we built in player we're tracking as well. Also, we lately start to use ClickHouse for, uh, for example, we um, add a new button in the interface for a storefront. Uh, this is where we also using our small uh, ClickHouse library. So we built a JavaScript library that uh, can track events. Um, and uh, we're just sending those events to ClickHouse and then looking at them through our uh, business intelligence, like data visualization tools. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it must be awesome to run a platform so successful like that to where you can actually not just be able to analyze that data, but you get so much data in that you can actually do something with the data, right? It's not like you're getting 10 of them a month or whatever. It's like you can just throw it on, look at it in two hours and be like, oh, that doesn't work. Let's switch it back to, to the other thing. Yeah, for, for a storefront part of our business, definitely. It's definitely working like that because it's a lot of users, a lot of visitors, and you can you can check your uh, your ideas pretty quick. With um, our customers, it it's not like this because it's like um, I think with all the trials, it's like ten thousand of users using the platform from the publishers, content creator side. So um, it's a little bit big difference compared to storefront where it's like millions of users. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of like, you know, your customers versus their customers, do you also have uh, like a separate admin backend for you as like the company owner to go in? Uh, we have a little bit uh, of that, but it's a really small um, application part that allowing our customer success, customer support team to work with customers. Okay. So that's just make it easier to do customer support stuff and just answering questions? Yes, correct. Okay. How would you end up being able to access certain customer data, like, do you have any web UI information about that? Or is that just basically just all the business analytics that you're getting from ClickHouse is basically all of that? Like, if you just wanted to check, like, how many users you have or whatever. So we have a data warehouse uh, set up, uh, and uh, we, we're using Holistic for um, data visualization. So it's, it's similar to Looker or, or other tools that's basically allowing to do the same thing. Okay. Yeah, this episode is funny. Like, I feel like we have so much more to talk about and like, there's so much I want to dive into, but I feel like it would end up being like a five hour episode then. But you mentioned you are running a custom Nginx router, like in front of Heroku. Do you want to just give us like the rundown of how you have that set up and, you know, where that is hosted if it's outside of Heroku? Yeah, it's, uh, it's currently hosted in DigitalOcean and uh, they have a really nice setup of floating IPs and option to, to run. Actual routers and in the different regions, we're doing that. Um, the biggest issue there is then on Heroku for your Rails application to understand which uh, domain was requested. We built a little bit of a um, monkey patch in, in our Rails to understand the end user domain and uh, end user IP address as well. But other than that, it just Request coming to DigitalOcean. There we we getting to a correct server, and from there we getting to Heroku. So that's how it's working. And delay is not not like uh, like visible to end user, so it's working pretty fast. Right. Yeah, it's a really cool setup. I've actually have not had anyone on the show who did anything like that. But it's like thinking about it now, like just we just you described it. It's like. It's not as, comp like, I'm sure it's complicated to set up, but, like, it makes total sense. Like, why couldn't your 
nginx router just route traffic to heroku like it doesn't need to be direct through heroku yeah yeah it's, it's not actually complicated it was just scary initially yes yeah. you don't you don't find it in, in any tutorial you're like okay it seems like it should work you know and then once you set up and run it it's working you're feeling really good yeah it's really awesome to see and what that setup there is it just using stack like the open source version of Nginx or do you have the Nginx plus or even like open resty or something for like Lua scripting? No, no, it's just like open source version of Nginx and it's completely fine. I'm, I'm working with uh, no problems. At one point uh, we wanted to explore a little bit more of Nginx functionality and, and get to the paid version of Nginx, but then we end up with a different route. So. Right. So in other words, what you're saying is Nginx built such a good product that their open source version is all you need. Yeah, exactly. By the way, uh, what type of box do you have that running on? Or is it even running on multiple ones with like a DigitalOcean load balancer in front of that? Oh, we don't have uh, DigitalOcean load balancing there. So um, we just use our own Nginx setup there. Like and just scripting E4 requests coming to Nginx. That's it. Okay. And then like the DigitalOcean server, the, the droplet size, do you know like how much memory and CPU that one has? I don't remember that, but it's not a big droplet because uh, the work that happening on Nginx side is, is really small and, and requests just going through pretty fast. Right. So like Nginx side, it's kind of just set up, you know, basically like a, like a reverse proxy, right? I guess. Yes, correct. Correct. And then what, you're setting things like certain headers that Heroku will be able to read and then your Rails app can see like the real true IP address and whatever? Yes, correct. Okay, cool. Yeah, so was there anything about the tech stack that we missed, by the way, like technologies, like services that you might be using? Not services, what, you know, like Postgres or, you know, you mentioned you're using Kafka as well. Is there anything else? I think those are the biggest, the biggest one we're using. Okay. Do you happen to use Docker in development or production? Um, because we're using Heroku, we're, we're like happy with, with just what Heroku will give you out of the box. We have uh, Docker for, for our engineers because some of our engineers like to to use Docker for their like daily base development, mm -hmm. but we're not running Docker in production. Okay. And for the Heroku side of things, do you want to go over uh, what led you down to use Heroku in the first place? You know, you mentioned like it just works and it's really nice, which is awesome, right? And definitely not like trying to grill you on your tech choice, but did you weigh the pros and cons versus doing self-hosted or, you know, on AWS or everything on DigitalOcean? Yeah. So, um, when we started to use Heroku, we were like a really small team. We were like three engineers. And uh, we decided that uh, it would be much better to focus on, uh, on the coding uh, and on the features rather than just supporting uh, the application and making sure that reliability is there. So that's how it started. And uh, before we moved to Heroku, I think we ran servers in DigitalOcean. And it was just painful in terms of scalability. Right. Yeah, because I don't know if you're going to be able to mention this, but like how many workers and dynos do you run in Heroku now? Right now, um, we have Autoscaler with uh, Autoscaler uh, Atom, which, which is extremely awesome. Can't tell you enough uh, why you need to use it. It's just actually saving you money on top of that. Um, and uh, on average, we're running from four to 12 dinos depends on uh, on the day on hour it's scaling pretty well and and we're using puma 
and uh, we tweak uh, Puma quite a bit in the past 12 months to make sure we're using most of our dinos. And we're using uh, the, the biggest dinos they have. Okay. Do you happen to know what the memory and CPU specs are on the biggest ones? Yeah, so performance dinos, uh, it's performance L, so it has like 14 gigabytes of RAM. Okay. What about CPU cores in that one? I don't actually remember CPUs, and I don't see them in the pricing, at least in the, in simple prices. Maybe somewhere under the comparison chart or whatever. I guess in a weird way, that's, that's a good thing. It's like you don't even need to think about it. You kind of just pick whatever works, and you look at the performance, and if it works, then it works. I think the biggest issue for us initially was that to make sure that Puma is actually efficient with usage of the of the dyno. Do you want to get into that? Like you mentioned tweaking Puma. Are we talking just like configuration values here, or, do, or did you actually fork it? No, 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 just configuration values to, to find the, the perfect spot with uh, threads, with workers, where it's also not conflicting with, uh, with the database. Because I don't know if you, if you know or not that the Pulse-Trest um, setup in Heroku also limit you in the amount of connection to, I think, five, 500 connections. Is that with their largest Postgres database? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So how do you connect or how do you calculate the max there, right? It's like number of Puma workers times like number of dinos and like that's how many connections that you can have open plus like uh, potentially other things too? Um, I think it's a uh, number of uh, database connection that you set up in your database config file. X on that's where it's getting tricky, and I always need to to go back to the Puma uh, documentation because I don't actually remember out of the, my mind that the difference between like the, the thread and workers there. Okay. Um, but yeah, you just you just need to make sure that uh, you actually not uh, overload your uh, your Postgres and uh, you have available connection there still. Okay. Did you ever run into in the past where you did overload it a bit? I think in days when we start uh, to optimize it, we, we hit that a little bit, but it was really easy to to get notification about that from our uh, bug trigger because Rails will clearly say to you that there's no database connection available for you. Right. By the way, you mentioned how many dynos you have, but what about workers? On the sidekick side, um, we are running, I think, two dinos with um, up to like 200, 300 workers simultaneously. Okay, that is a lot. But also you mentioned having tons of jobs that you need to run, right? Yeah, correct. Okay, and then on the Heroku side, do you want to go over maybe some add-ons that you're using that we haven't discussed yet? Like probably using like the Postgres add-on, but anything else? So... Autoscaler, Postgres, uh, we we also using Redis there. Uh, Kafka initially we started to use on Heroku, and then we moved to to our own Kafka. I think those are the major ones and the New Relic. Ah, okay. So do you use uh, which features of New Relic? Like just basic logging or APM? So um, we mostly using it. Um, for logging and for understanding of, uh, like, if there is an incident, what is going on, uh, 
which um, endpoints are overloaded, just basically what's happening. Okay. It's been a little bit since I used New Relic, but do they give you those types of views where you can kind of just look at an endpoint and get like a breakdown of, oh, you're spending this amount of time in your view or in controller or whatever, like well, just basically a good breakdown? Yeah, it's it's really nice breakdown there. Yeah. Do they also give you some way to like tie together a specific user to their activity to kind of see like an audit log of what they've been doing on your site? Not so much for like tracking for figuring out like, you know, a business sense, but more just like, you know, if you need to trace an error. I actually don't remember that we were able to track individual user. So uh, on the error logging side, we we could do that. And we're using Sentry right now. So that's where we actually getting to specific environment or specific website storefront and understanding of what's going on to debug it afterwards. Okay. I don't know why what you just said reminded me of this, but going back to earlier when you were talking about using ClickHouse and storing about a billion events a week, do you actually continuously store those like forever? I mean, maybe not forever, like end of life forever, but do you keep them around for like months and years or do you kind of just like roll them over after a couple of weeks? So right now, that's this thing that we were storing it all the time. That's where ClickHouse is really powerful because it's shrinked data so well that you will be actually impressed. Hmm. Uh, when it comes to the ClickHouse database, you know, storing billion events a week, um, do you happen to know how large the database is now and how many events are in there total? No, I, I don't have anybody right now who can answer it, but... If you would be interesting, I, I, I can I can check that after and uh, give you some some data points. Sure. Yeah, I can just throw that into the show notes later when the episode goes up. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about your deploy process. So do you want to walk us through what it's like for any developer just to start developing a feature and then it making its way up into the live website? Yeah. So. Um... We currently fully own Heroku, so uh, the whole pipeline, we're using Heroku for it and Heroku Video apps come in handy. That's where it's all started. Whenever engineer creating their branch and pushing something to GitHub, they getting the application up and running on the, um, as a review app in Heroku. Then we have a pre-production staging environment where test final changes, and then we promote that uh, application to a production environment. So it's it's pretty simple. Okay. So if you had to guess here, like how long do you think it takes for the whole pipeline to run from, you know, some pull request getting merged to it being live? Usually like deployment process right now with uh, all the sets uh, compiling taking like 12 to 15 minutes and then promoting Two productions taking like one minute. Oh wow! Okay. Same as rollback. Rollback is around one one and a half minute as well. Yeah, that's very nice to. It must be comforting to know that you can always roll back or just um, move forward that quickly. Yeah. Well, with that, um, that's also another big plus from Heroku. You like you kind of don't even need to think about that. Right. And for those, you know, twelve to fifteen minutes, whatever it happens to be, is that mainly just waiting for your whole test suite to run or uh, Webpacker to build some assets? Webpacker is definitely taking a lot of time there. Yeah, because that would be super interesting, right? Like with the Rails 7 stuff, if you move the ES build, it's like imagine just cutting your CI time from 12 minutes down to like, I don't know, five. Yeah, that's that's where we're really excited about this. And uh, we honestly still have um, some 
some old stuff in our assets pipeline, and uh, we almost get rid of that. And uh, with this Rails 7 changes, I'm like, okay, now we need to, to do another round of uh, cleanup. But um, if it will allow us to save time on the building assets, I, I think it's definitely worth it. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, CI is automating a whole bunch of stuff, but it's still kind of annoying when it takes uh, quite some time to run. Yeah, definitely. Now, when it comes to just developing features, like, you know, a couple of people on your team working together, do you do like full-blown code reviews? Like, does someone have to approve uh, a PR before it gets merged or something like that? Yeah, so I, I can share like the whole process, how it's working. We shape up for building a new feature uh, and uh, we're using it in a little bit modified way because I know that the base I'm saying that there is no product managers. I still feel like uh, they are um, taking the role of a product manager in those projects. Mm -hmm. um, so we trying to push our engineering and um, to work together from the day one. So the product manager uh, back and front and engineer and QA and designer will work as a cross-functional team from the day one on the feature. Um, so they're spending a lot of time, I would say, to, to figure out what's to build. And we have a six uh, weeks um, deadline. And then they trying to build a feature or like MVP of a feature in that uh, time frame. So usually they work together and having a one uh, primary uh, branch uh, in the GitHub and, and merging staff to it as they go. Um, QA working with them constantly. So QA understanding use case and, and writing test cases or test scenarios actually before they even started development based on design concepts. So that's how the whole process is working and once um, it's done they also usually have a teammates like a free teammate who is on, on cooldown right now and working on like smaller items or code improvements this person will do a code review and uh, in our code review we we besides just checking how code look like we we actually trying to to break the code yeah i would say like we're spending quite a lot of time on, on the code review and preparing the feature for release. But uh, so far it allowed us to, to decrease amount of issues where we're seeing in production afterwards. Right, so it sounds like an approach where it's like, I don't know if you ever did like woodworking before, it's like measure twice and then cut once. So it's like, you're kind of doing a little bit more work up front to make less mistakes later. Yeah, correct. Plus um, I think it's, the code review, pro we really like, like the code review as a process, and I think it's really viable part of uh, the whole uh, process of feature creation. Because on the code review, it's like in remote uh, environment where you like, cause we were remote from the day one, and uh, we always struggled with, uh, with communication. I think for the first like three, four years, the biggest pitfall of the whole all the processes was communication so the code review is uh, is a really nice place where you can communicate with your teammates share your experience share uh, your knowledge about the code the code base uh, and uh, as now our teams are uh, working on a specific part of the business logic all the time together 
they know what is going on in in that um, in that area of the business. So code review usually really valuable there. Yeah, I I can't also speak highly enough about code reviews because I don't know I don't want to speak too highly of myself because it would be weird. But it's like I feel like I have a very good attention to detail. But even with that, I feel like every single time I commit code and someone does a code review, they're always pointing out some like, I make the most dumbest mistakes here and there. It just feels like having a second set of eyes or more is like absolutely essential. Yeah, and uh, that's where also trying to push more um, pair programming sessions because I feel this is like, this is the technique that a lot of people not value enough. Right. Because you have like literally online code review with a with a second uh, pair of eyes and, and, and more thoughts about the code you're writing. And whenever you're trying to explain right away what, what are you doing to someone, you're actually thinking through it twice, which is sometimes extremely helpful. It's, you know, when uh, one thing is to do something and another thing to explain to someone else. And while you're explaining to someone, you're actually understanding what you're doing a lot better. Yeah, for sure. It's almost like using, I don't know, like a totally completely different area of your brain to like uncover things you never would have thought of. Yeah, correct. Now, with those code reviews, uh, I'm curious how you handle that. Like if someone were to implement something and it's time to review that, do you kind of just like keep it open and it's a free for all and who's ever available can go and check it out? Or do you kind of specifically tag a specific developer uh, because it's like, you know, their area of the code base? Uh, we, we use the code owner file. Um in terms of like some changes and uh, because you usually know your teammates and their uh, availability, at least you know who from them is uh, on, uh, not actively working on the feature right now. People just tag them. And if they don't have enough understanding of, uh, of the area of responsibility, they usually free to, to give it away to someone else. We're currently trying to see if like at least one engineer will do a code review, in good case, two engineers from the team. Okay. And then for just keeping communication in check, do you use like a combination of Slack or do you use Jira tickets or Basecamp or anything like that to do uh, just opening tickets? So we just use GitHub and GitHub issues. We were using Trello, then from Trello, we migrated to Jira and uh, like it didn't work out well for our team. so we're moved to GitHub info. And so far we're really happy and we're really excited to see uh, what GitHub will bring us soon as a, uh, as a new tool for uh, project management. Because I know that they currently run it in the private beta. So if someone from GitHub listening at it, I would be more than happy to participate in closed beta. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was like one repo I had. It wasn't even popular, but it was when GitHub was just starting to release like GitHub discussions, right? A way for you to basically chat about certain topics instead of being issues. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what other features they have because something like that was like super helpful to have. Do you use that by the way, like the discussions or no? Yeah, we actually using discussions. So we're using uh, issues for uh, creating actual issues and bugs and potential improvements. And we're using discussion for uh, technical proposals. For example, if someone want to to try a new approach or to question uh, our current approaches. Um, we're usually using discussion and vote there. Right. Yeah, really good feature. What about like the projects one, like their built-in Kanban board? Do you use that? 
like some product managers and our team use it to just kind of understand what is going on with a specific feature. But in general, we don't because um, when you're using ShapeUp, like you have a project that you're actively working on and, and you have a deadline. You don't need to know too much on top of that. Okay. And speaking of ShapeUp, like I know that is like a methodology that originated from Basecamp, but I'm not full blown on the details. Do you have any like resources that folks can go to or like a podcast episode that you can name drop that we can go look it up or maybe just also give us like the tldr um i think the best place to, to read about uh, shape up is uh, this actual official site of shape up and uh, one another resource i would i would tell to check is the shape up forum because on the forum you can find a lot of different use cases of shape up in the different companies where structure is not similar to a Basecamp because still I would say Basecamp has pretty specific structure and pretty specific uh, way of doing stuff. Like in our case, we're not like strictly following all the rules from the Basecamp book. But if you read the book, uh, it's it's good start. Okay. And is it shapeup.com or I know the book name is shapeup, but is that the domain too? So actually, the main is basecamp.com slash shapeup. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that one in the show notes. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk more about disaster recovery or unexpected events. I'd be curious to, to hear how you back up all of your data. So on the backup side, uh, we, we're doing multiple things. Uh, first of all, we because we're running with Heroku, Heroku providing awesome backups for uh, Postgres. On top of that, we do in our own backups of Postgres from Heroku. We're always running multiple instances of uh, Heroku Postgres in case we need to change it or change the different region. And um, for our routers, we also have like multiple routers like ready to go if something happening with, uh, with the DigitalOcean region that's uh, where currently I don't know, methane's coming in or something. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear, like you have that Nginx droplet or the router running in two completely different regions, like NYC3 and then maybe somewhere on the, on the West Coast or whatever? Yes, correct. Okay. Uh, what about that ClickHouse database? Because, yeah, I would imagine things would get expensive starting to, to keep copies of all that data. So um, ClickHouse actually has... Uh, built-in redundancy and uh, you're actually running multiple instances of it. So it's it making your life a lot easier right away from the box. Mm. Yeah. After this episode, like you're making me think like I really need to learn more about that because there are so many cases where you just want to dump a ton of data and not edit it. Basically, just like keep appending to it. Actually, no, like ClickHouse is really interesting technology and uh, usually I don't hear about ClickHouse too much here in the U.S., it's really popular in Russia, and it's came from Russia. It's built by Yandex, which is a Russian version of Google, as everybody will tell you from Russia. And um, mm. it's awesome. They have Yandex Analytics, uh, which is, again, version of Google Analytics in Russia. Uh, and the whole Yandex Analytics were backed by Clickhouse. And... Um, I actually know that I think Mox has a few articles on the ClickHouse somewhere because I, I, I from what I remember, Mox using ClickHouse as well for their 
video analytics. They have a different type of video analytics. They're like more about performance data of your video, where our analytics is engagement. Yeah, like it, it's really interesting database. And I think a lot of people just don't know about it because here you have um, right away you're going with like BigQuery or Redshift or uh, Snowflake those kind of like more enterprise solutions. You don't hear about ClickFunnels or ClickHouse too much because I think Yandex also not doing a good enough job to advertise it because they, they just build it for internal usage and they don't care too much about usage of this database somewhere outside. Right. Yeah, that that's very cool to see. And yeah, hopefully uh, it does get more popular and a little bit more library support because, you know, you did mention, what was it? Clickhouse Active Record, like some gem that someone made, or did you end up making that one? Um, I think it's uh, it's made by someone who definitely didn't make that one, and it's working pretty good. Nice. Now, on the topic of uh, just backing up files, when it comes to user-generated content, like uploading photos and whatnot, do you have those stored somewhere? Yeah, so we have multiple backups in different systems and different regions because... Um, Video data and video storage is really sensitive data for us. So we have multiple layers of it. And that's that's where like um, it's getting expensive, I think. But it's worth it because we, we had previously incidents when uh, the part of, of our files were just uh, lost in, in the in the cloud and uh, because of backups we were like pretty quick to to come back and up and running this is where we like have like not like one layer of backups multiple layers of backups yeah multiple layers of video backups that sounds uh very expensive but also <laughs> <laughs> now when it comes to those backups though do you do any exercises like on a regular basis just to see if you can restore from things like on a staging server not really okay do you recall the last time you had an event where you did need to uh, restore and like what caused that event? From a database perspective, I think we never restored the data because everything was fine so far. We, we also not like uh, from the publisher standpoint, any data point publisher deleting, they get soft deleted first and then 30 days after we actually delete the data. And uh, we we stating it clearly everywhere, um, and so far it it was extremely helpful, because sometimes content creators by mistake could delete something that they will, and then they will be not happy about that, <laughs> even mm-hmm. though they have all the notification there that hey if you will delete it it will be deleted, uh, but we know that you know like people sometimes not particularly reading what they're getting so. Um, those uh, standard procedure as having like soft delete before we actually completely delete data helping a lot to prevent us from getting back to our backups and finding the, the data piece that needs to be restored. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm, I totally agree with that. Like, you know, there's a lot of folks out there where they're very against the soft delete, but that's, I think, only if you keep it around forever. But it sounds like you delete it after 30 days, which is very reasonable because, yeah, I mean, even from a security point of view, I know I've seen some YouTube, like big YouTube people, somehow they fall for a scam and like their channel gets overtaken and suddenly, you know, their channel with like 4 million subscribers and like thousands of videos just gets deleted. Like, yeah, not being able to restore that easily would be uh, trouble, I would say. Yeah, correct. Plus, um, 
Yeah, I totally agree that uh, keep soft deleted records forever is, is not an amazing idea. Plus, I think right now you just, from the law perspective, you probably can't even do that. Because uh, if, if you if user want to delete their personal data, you just should allow them. And yeah. um, especially in Europe, uh, the, the law getting uh, more strict on that. You got to follow the rules. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, uh, just lastly about the disaster recovery and things like that. Do you have any alarm set up to where you'll get notified if the site happens to go down? Yeah, so we have Ops Genie. And uh, we have multiple alerts coming from New Relic uh, on a different set of events. So we have uh, separated uh, alerts for uh, background workers uh, with a little bit lower priority. Uh, the web workers with higher priority. We have um, just availability reports from Uptime Robot. And we have a separated um, bulk of uh, different events um, on top of 4-hour Postgres. So whenever Postgres is getting slow, we're getting notified and uh, our on-call team members getting a call from Ops Genie. Nice. So, yeah, I'm happy that you brought up the on-call element again. Like, do you have a, a dedicated team of Ops people who manage all of this stuff? Or is it just like every developer gets, you know, their feet wet with all the Heroku stuff and kind of rotates on on-call once in a while? So we currently have uh, two, um, two people in our Ops team. Just because we're running Heroku, we fortunately don't need yet to, to build anything complicated. Uh, but on-call team is actually engineers who daily base working on the, the whole project on the Monolith app. And it's just weekly duty and uh, we just pay an extra for it. So for engineers, it's a, it's a good way to make more money. And uh, as they already know what is, go what is going on in the platform, they can pretty quickly identify issues. Right. Yeah, it's always an interesting subject about on-call, especially like if there's not too many people that you can rotate and maybe it's like built into your job requirements. But yeah, it definitely takes its toll on you if you have to, to be around 24-7. Even if you only get called on like three times a year, it's still knowing that you might get called on. Yeah, yeah. It's just mentally it's hard because you know that you and your laptop now... Uh, right, inseparable. The, the one organism... Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you, you can't like just leave the house without taking your laptop and making sure that you have some kind of somewhat of internet connection. So yeah, the once we... Cause I, I was doing that for the first like three, four years in the company while we were small. Yeah, I can relate that. It's stressful. So when, when you actually have a team, uh, you, can, you can find someone there for a backup. So it's good now, uh, and I really think that in our case, it makes sense for engineers to actually work uh, on on-call team rather than dedicated ops, because uh, the whole setup is pretty pretty simple for now. Right, plus you have the benefit of Heroku, so yeah, it's like they're doing their on-call for you so that like, unless something really, really, really goes wrong, like, you, I don't know, when was the last time that you had an on-call event? Um, let me actually open... Ops Genie, and I will tell you right away. All right. Getting to the good stuff here. Yeah. Last time it was 26 days ago, and it was a problem with our store fonts. Okay. Now, you don't need to get into the gory details about all of these, but like just skimming your, you know, downtime event log, like how many downtime events do you think you had that related to someone being on call having to answer over the last, like, let's say six months or maybe a year, if you don't mind? If we're talking about like 
full blast down time. I know that we're keeping like 99.9.8 uptime through the year. We had some issue during pandemic. In, so everything got closed down here in March. April, May is the time where we got hit. Um, just because we, we get like 10x of the traffic and we were not expecting that. <laughs> um, but it was like scalability issue and that was where we actually pretty fast introduced uh, the varnish cache on our storefront. And from there, uh, I don't remember that we had like just a full downtime unless it's like scheduled maintenance of our Postgres instance, for example. Right. And when you started getting that big spike of traffic, like what was the turnaround time before, uh-oh, like the wheels are falling off the machine to now it's running smoothly? We had proper fixed in less than two weeks, uh, but fixed to survive we had in uh, two hours. Okay. What, what did you do to survive uh, the onslaught of traffic? So we added more instances and um, changed the caching strategy on the Redis side, just Rails cache uh, for some parts of endpoints. It did the, the work to allow us to survive hmm. while we're building the proper solution. Yeah, that must have been interesting where it's like, you know, normally humming along at like maybe five dinos. And now it's like, well, suddenly, you know what? We're going to actually need 500 of these. For us, it was a change from like uh, three, four to like 15, 17 dinos. And oh. the, I think with Rails, the biggest problem where things start to fall off is actually um, connection to Postgres. So Postgres starting to slow down unless you caching stuff really well or unless you're on Rails 6 and you have multiple read databases, which we were not lucky at the time to have that luxury. Uh, for us, it was a problem. Okay. But now that's uh, going to be a solved problem, right? Or it is right now that you're on Rails 6. Yeah. It's thanks to, to GitHub and their contribution to Rails. It's a solved problem. Yeah. That's so amazing when uh, we get to benefit the rewards of like a really, really massive company contributing good stuff back to the code base. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I always um, happy whenever I see that. Shopify or GitHub hiring more engineers because I, I know right away that it will contribute to Rails. As, as they growing, uh, we're getting more tools in the Rails itself for our feature builds, which is awesome. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of awesome, do you want to list out maybe some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building out this platform? Best tip would be is to not overcomplicate processes. So. If you can use just a standard Rails functionality that's given you by framework and follow the Rails doctrine, it's awesome because it will allow you to, to move faster, it will allow you to, to change things faster and um, not depend on gems or libraries that you will need to teach new people who will come into your project. That's I wish I would knew when I would be like, oh, standard Rails is, is not enough. Let's use more patterns or, <laughs> you know, like where you typically as an engineer in one point of your career, you're like, yes, standard Rails is, is not enough anymore. I, I know better and I will I will use uh, 
10 more buttons and use like six more jams that will extend the Rails functionality. And then the new engineer coming in and like, wow, what a zoo is here. Fortunately, I, I had the really good engineers who, who showed me that I was wrong and just the pure Rails way is possible. That's the biggest thing. Uh, also, second thought would be is to try to not split monolith application to, to microservices or uh, multiple big Rails application unless you're like 100%, 1 million percent sure it's needed. Because a lot of people saying that um, they have struggled with scaling Rails app, as we know, but there are a bunch of solutions. And as Rails growing, you have like read replicas of databases, uh, you can use varnish cache on top for a specific endpoint, split data to uh, to specific endpoints again where most part of it would be cached. You will be perfectly fine with, with tons of requests. Like right now, our Heroku could easily digest like 150,000 uh, RPMs and uh, 35, 40% on top of that would be digested um, in varnish cache. It's it's like, it's good where, where you know that uh, this, this type of scale is easy with Rails, considering that there is a Shopify somewhere there with, uh, with Black Fridays, I think can can sleep well if you just uh, do the right thing with just the Rails stack. Yeah, for sure. And it's kind of funny too, because like on the flip end, I don't know if you listened to this episode, but I had Chris Oliver on who runs GoRails and yeah, his whole entire application is just like humming along on a single $20 a month DigitalOcean server. And I don't know how many, you know, many customers he has, but I think there was like 40 something thousand signups. So it's like really cool to see that Rails will have your back covered at, you know, the smaller scale and the larger scale. And even the smaller scale, it's like Chris is still running like a million dollar business. So yeah. Well, actually, actually uh, his app, is a good use case because you can build on the history, uh, the tutorials, uh, videos, like bite-sized learning where you have one topic and answer to that topic. Yep, absolutely. So Nick, thanks a lot for coming on the Running and Production Podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you for having me and uh, have a good rest of your day. Yep, anytime. But before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, so I get I delete myself from Twitter <laughs> recently. Uh, but you can find me on the GitHub with uh, Savrov uh, with double F in the end. So uh, I hope you can just share the link. And uh, also Ustream is always hiring Ruby engineers and uh, front-end engineers who like UGS. Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to link all those in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. Okay, so we are clear to very carefully... You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.